Good morning. And we got our summer summer crowd, and that is absolutely okay. Uh, I like to go into teacher mode, and so we're gonna have a good time. Two two things. Uh, I, two things before you start my timer. Don't start my timer. Thank you. Jeff knows, man. He knows. After I pray, he can start my timer. Um, Two things, corporate prayer is key to us pushing through our global barriers, global difficulties and things we're engaged in. It's key to pushing through our local things, asking the Lord, persevering in prayer. So just want to continue to encourage you as we enter that time of corporate prayer together that uh, that you engage, that it's time to build the inner life as we sit there and we hear the word and then we quietly pray that the father hears. And so I just want to just I want to exhort you hard to engage. It's building on the inside and it's having cosmic effect that's awesome right jesus says when we pray pray in faith pray believing and so as we do that god is moving things and so just encourage you hard to stay 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 committed to that as we gather uh, together as we pray corporately but secondly happy father's day dads awesome right i hope that you get all the brute and English leather and Stetson you can possibly enjoy. Right? So, hey, don't hate. Just appreciate. Somebody, hey, brute and English leather is the standard, baby. So I expect next week some dads to come in here smelling good, right? None of that, none of that expensive stuff. $2 for 20 gallons. Enjoy your brute, right? So uh, let's have a great Father's Day. Wear your great ties and smell like brute next Sunday. And we're going to have a great Sunday next week. All right, dads? Yeah, that's right. Thank you. So happy Father's Day, dads. And so also this morning, uh, dads, we're going to we're going to look doctrinally at an incredible passage. And I just want to encourage you to continue to do the great things you're doing as dads to lead doctrinally in your home. So let's pray. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into the text and get after it. Father, we pray in Jesus name that you will take your word and you will make it a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Holy Spirit, Jesus said that you're. Mission is to guide us to truth, to counsel us and remind us of everything you've said. So I pray now that you will take your word and that you will cause it to land on our hearts in effect. Would you do that? We pray you would pull that off right now uh, in the moments to come and, and even for that matter the rest of the day and the rest of this week. We entrust your word to you to do with it as you see fit. So please do it. We pray now in Jesus name. Amen. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Man's continued rebellion and then God's gracious and good response to restrain the rebellion. I'm going to read the passage and then we're just going to launch into it. Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower or a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do 
will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. They left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Genesis is absolutely loaded with the answers to who we are and why we are that way. Again, the name tips us off. It's beginnings. It's where things started. It's how they unraveled. It's who we are. It's why we are the way we are. And our task is to mine that out and then to make application to it. And fathers, I want to continue to encourage you to continue to proactively grow in this effort to build a doctrinal legacy in our homes. This passage is an intimately doctrinal passage. And, 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 And this is something I hold very dearly. And that is that the discipline of theology is the chief of all disciplines. The knowledge of God is the knowledge that should inform every other discipline. Biblically, that's where it starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So any discipline in this earth that comes from created order must be informed by the God that made it. Now, that makes logical sense, right? We, we understand that. Which means we must continually sharpen our doctrinal understanding. And so the discipline of theology for all of us, dads and moms, students, children, all of us, is to understand that the knowledge of God is absolutely essential and that we must get it right. Because as I learned going through uh, my education, we're all theologians. Everybody's a theologian. The question isn't, Am I theologian? The question is, am I a good one or a sloppy one? Atheists are theologians. They just make some really bad presuppositions. Because they have thoughts on God. If you have thoughts on God, you're a theologian. The question is, are you good or are you sloppy? Theology is always happening. Doctrine's always happening. How we think on God determines how we live. And how... They thought on God affected the Babylonians in our passage today. Because Ham passed his theological and practical presuppositions on to his descendants. And they lived them out. Listen, families. Don't think that what you believe about God doesn't have practical implications. Because here's a little tip off. Because God so wired the universe to work this way. You will do what you believe about God. You will do what you believe about God. And what Ham believed about God was passed on to his descendants. And they began to work it out. And so we're either making decisions as imitators of God, as Ephesians 5 1 says that we are to do, we're to be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. So we're either making decisions as imitators of God, or we're making decisions divorced from the knowledge and imitation of God, which is, in essence, an applied theology. It's called practical atheism. And so we may say we believe in God. Even better, we may say we believe the God of the Bible, 
But if we don't do like he does and practice like he says, we're really practical atheists. Which is a nice, neat philosophical trick we've been able to pull off in the Western Hemisphere, divorcing belief from practice. And biblically, there's no room for that. So, in our passage today, what do we see? What are observations? What does it mean? And then how can we make application to it? Well, the first thing I want to draw your attention to, the first truth I want to draw your attention to, and by the way, there's a load of things we can do in this passage, but we only have a certain amount of time. So I'm going to give you some and trust that the tools we're giving you, you're able to go and read and study also on your own. So the first truth I want you to see is from chapter 10, verse 9. And we're not studying expositionally through the genealogies of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, okay? But we pointed to them last week, and we're going to point to them again today because there's some key components there. And then chapter 11, verse 1 to 4, here's this truth. Mankind, because of the fall, because of sin, is inclined to a rebellious heart. Mankind, because of the fall and because of the rebellion, is inclined to a rebellious heart that distorts the knowledge of God. Our rebellious heart, because of the fall, distorts the knowledge of God. Chapter 10, verse 9, we see something that's kind of important here. And that is that Ham's grandson, Nimrod, is the founder of Babylon. Meaning... What we read in chapter 11, verse 1 to 4, is the practical outworking of the theological set of beliefs that Ham practiced in our passage last week. Meaning that what I've already said is true. What we believe about God ultimately gets practiced. Babylon is viewed, by the way, all the way through Scripture, not positively. You're not going to find anything really good written about Babylon. As a matter of fact, Ham's descendants, his children, his grandsons, Nimrod in particular, are going to be viewed as absolutely the antithesis of godliness. As a matter of fact, you can look, uh, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll discover that it is Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who carries Judah captive back to Babylon. As a matter of fact, you'll read in one of the Psalms, a tormentous Psalm, about the Babylonians requiring of the people of Judah songs of praise. Play for us on your harp some of the songs of Zion as we hold you in captivity. There's nothing that's going to look on Babylon with positivity. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 18, you're going to discover that this capital city of the Antichrist and this movement against the gospel that John looks to, he calls them Babylon. So what do we learn about this rebellious heart that's inclined to distort the knowledge of God that comes from our theological presuppositions? Well, the first thing we discover, this is all subpoints under the first truth. The first thing we discover about this rebellious heart that is against and distorts the knowledge of God is that a rebellious heart distorts the knowledge of God. I want you to notice here something important in verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4. They said, come... Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. The Babylonians were theologians. And their false doctrine led to their practice of temple building. 
As a matter of fact, they were famed for their temples called ziggurats. Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T-S, ziggurats. They viewed these temples with their foundations being in the underworld and their tops reaching up into the heavens. Now, you got to understand, when they say the heavens, they don't mean like a building reaching up into heaven, like like they're going up into the place of eternal abode. Saying reaching up into the heavens is the Old Testament way of saying skyscraper. We don't really mean our buildings scrape the sky, do we? We mean they're really tall. So when they spoke of their buildings reaching up into the heavens, what they're saying, we're building really tall buildings because what they believed doctrinally is that if they got high enough, they could kind of reach where the gods hung out. And interestingly enough, the word Babel has multiple meanings. One of them is gate of God or gate of the gods. And so therefore, believing that these temples had their foundation in the underworld and that the tops reached up to where the deities hung out, they believed that they as a city and they as a people particularly were closer to God than anybody or anybody else on the earth. As a matter of fact, these temples provided places for the deities to eat, sleep, and receive their worship. The problem? Their theology was demonically false. As a matter of fact, their theology was codified at the tree when Adam and Eve were deceived by this demonic doctrine that they too can be gods. Because what you'll begin to find is these gods of the Babylonians, these idols, resemble humans. They begin to resemble human needs. They have human likes and dislikes. As a matter of fact, you will find all through the Old Testament that the sin of idolatry is chiefly the sin of creating gods that are not in the image of man. Which is why the psalmist will say in Psalm 50 verse 21, These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. This is God speaking about their idolatry. You thought I was like you. You thought I had characteristics like you. But now I lay the charge against you. In other words, I'm not like you. I'm God. You're my creature. And the Babylonians worshipping these demonic entities began to create their idolatry in the image of themselves and distorted the knowledge of God. Next thing we see here also in verse 4 is this rebellious heart seeks its own fame. Build these towers to reach their deities that look an awful lot like them. And notice the second part of verse 4, and let us make a name for ourselves. This rebellious heart, this Babylonian heart seeks its own fame. It seeks its own lifting up. It seeks its own way, its own thing. As a matter of fact, one of the things God's going to say to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 36, He's going to say this all over the prophets, is that you have hurt my reputation, my name among the nations. And therefore, if I don't act to build my reputation, you've defamed me and I'm not worshipped there. So therefore, I must discipline you. Which is why Isaiah 26, 8 says, In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. But why? And he says, Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our soul. 
We have sinned. We've wanted our way. We've built our name. We've built our reputation. We've advanced ourselves. But in repentance, what we recognize is your name, your fame is the desire of our soul. And we see this rebellious heart seeks its own fame. Let us build a name for ourselves. Let us be something. We go back to the beginning. God created Adam and Eve not to be their own thing, but to do His thing, His way, and obey Him, that His knowledge, that who He is might be proclaimed. And we see here the rebellious heart gathering in the plain, distorting the knowledge of God, and seeking to build their own fame, their own reputation. And boy, that smells an awful lot like the narcissistic world of social media that we live in today. Is It's all about building one's brand. It's all about advancing one's cause. Whether Jesus is attached to it or not, and perhaps we want to attach Jesus to the cause to try to get something from Him, which is really awful theology. We don't do anything to get something from Jesus. We obey Jesus' commands and get on His mission, then we get His support. We don't do our thing and then ask Him to bless it. That's Babylonian. Your rebellious heart seeks its own fame. We also see in the third part of verse Four In chapter 11, the rebellious heart seeks to push back against God's purpose. Notice, building city and towers and really tall, making a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You may smell some rebellion there. If you go back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God stated His purpose before the fall. Before the fall. In other words, before sin... God's purpose for our parents and us was to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Pre-fall. And then what does God do after the rebellion? He sends them out of the garden to go. And what we find immediately following the flood and the population of the earth is them once again gathering together in a single place saying, let's do this so that we won't be dispersed and go where we're supposed to go. So the rebellious heart pushes back against God's purpose. We will not fill the earth. So what are some applications we can bring from these first four verses? Number one, don't be surprised by our tendency to distort the knowledge of God and read onto the knowledge of God our needs, not God's. Don't be surprised by that. I would argue that in this room, every single one of us wrestle through that. Is reading onto God ourselves and not letting the knowledge of God inform how we think, feel, and believe and act. So don't be surprised by our tendency to distort the knowledge of God. We pride ourselves, particularly in our branch of the Southern Baptist Convention, reformed, conservative doctrinally, believing in the inerrancy of Scripture, that we have correct doctrine. And I believe we do. But our doctrine often doesn't apply itself to the world around us in some in our camp. I don't mean in our church, but in our camp of conservatism. And what I would argue is what we've done is we've created God in our image because we've taken one part of God in doctrinal accuracy and taken the other part, the eternal Son of God, who came and applied that doctrinal accuracy to living in the world to bring the knowledge of God to the world by healing and preaching and fixing and repairing and loving. And if we aren't doing that, our knowledge of God is incomplete in practice. And so don't be surprised by our tendency, even in doctrinal 
uh, conservative places that we distort the knowledge of God by reading onto God our own selves. So often we read onto God the need for comfort and more and bigger and better and more services. And God's not, listen, I want you to mishear this. Please do not mishear this. God's not first concerned with the product you receive on Sunday mornings. He's just not. That is a purely, it's what I find interesting. This is one of the reasons we're so plugged into the world and I want you to be plugged into the world is when you begin to meet other Christians around the world, what you begin to discover is this need for more just isn't in them. That's a uniquely consumer, western, get more with my resources mentality that is absolutely opposite the kingdom of God. God's not concerned with the product you receive. My question is, what product are you bringing Him in the life that you live as a living sacrifice? That's the question God asks. So we want to read on to God our needs. And what God is saying is, do you know me? Do you know me? So don't be surprised by our tendency, even inside conservatism, to distort the knowledge of God by reading on to Him ourselves. Don't be surprised by our tendency to ignore sound theology and indiscriminately embrace terrible theology. Don't be shocked by our tendency to rebel against God's Word. Whew. I'm good at that. I'm good at reading over those passages and going, I'm doing okay, move on. Right? I need you to know this, I need to know this. Theology affects our practice, whether we're aware of it or not. So therefore, I call us as a church, pursue theological soundness and accuracy and practice. Begin to take a, an evaluation of what you believe and then make a list of how what you believe gets worked out Monday through Sunday. How do you practice believing in the sovereignty of God over every molecule in the air? Right? <laughs> how do you practice trusting that God is in charge? How do you begin to practice believing God loved the world? Chapter 11 Verse 1 to 9, this is the second truth we see in the passage, the whole nine verses. God mocks the Babylonian false teaching. He mocks the Babylonians false teaching. Chapter 11, 1 to 9, the whole of it is a satire. And it's making fun, and I'm going to say something about this in just a minute, so don't get ahead of me, okay? It's a satire, and it's God making fun of man's attempt to be God, and thus make gods in their own image, and then trying to placate those deities that are made in their own image by reaching into their realm. Remember the audience? Remember this is key as you study the Bible. Who's the audience? The audience is the people of God. And Moses wants these people coming out of Egypt who are about to go into these lands to not have the good doctrine they are being taught trashed by bad theology. And so Moses is giving them a satire that makes fun of the bad theology. Remember these temples that they built. They believed they could reach up into the heavens and the tall places and meet the needs of these human-like deities. And we read here something in verse 5 that sometimes trips people up. And it says this, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the question goes like this, Gosh, did God not know? Does God not see? Does He have to come down to know what's going on? Not at all. God came down not because He didn't know, but He came down 
And this is Moses relating this information to his people in a satire to mock their false teaching. Remember, the God of the Bible, this is good Bible doctrinal teaching. He is the all-seeing, he's the all-knowing, he's the all-powerful creator who determines the beginning from the end. Psalm 139. All the days of yours were written in the book he made for you before there was yet one of them. That's a fact. He knows, He's all-powerful, and He sees all things, and He's not open to alternative endings in which the enemy maybe wins. Moses is, in essence, trash-talking the false notion that man can reach and manipulate God. I'll say it to you another way. In essence, Moses is saying, you think your temple reaches God? It's so inadequate that God had to come down just to see it. He's trash-talking this Babylonian theology. And if you... Listen, this is key. If you don't have firmly in place the doctrine of God biblically, you can misread that passage. Well, God didn't know. He had to come see. This is why we encourage you to read your Bible. You read your Bible, you'll know, no, He sees. He's the all-seeing, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And this is where you begin to understand satire biblically. Is there are places God pokes fun at bad theology. Isaiah chapter 40. He says to them, you're worshiping idols made of sticks. You take a log. And half of it you burn to cook your food. And the other half you carve into an idol that cannot see and cannot hear and cannot answer you. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord made the heavens and the earth. That's sarcasm at its finest. In essence, Moses is saying, your temple's so tall that God had to come down and take a look at it. And they're like, our tower reaches the gods. And God's on his hands and knees getting a closer look going, oh, that's cute and tiny. Psalm 2, verse 1 to 4 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? (laughs) It's a rhetorical question. You know this is vain, Babylonians. This is worthless. All this time and this energy on this plane to make bricks and find tar for mortar to reach up. It's vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let's burst their bonds apart. Let's disobey. Let's stay on the plain. Let's not scatter. And cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. So chapter 11, verse 1 to 9 is a satire on the folly of bad doctrine. Some applications for us here. Number one, this is key. God's mocking of and sarcasm toward false teaching is not a license, nor is it instruction on the part of His people to mock and use sarcasm toward those who are stuck in bad doctrine. There's some people, and I don't want to name their names in, in, in Christian circles, who use sarcasm and mocking as a way to poke at bad teaching. And I would say it's out of bounds. That's God's place, not ours. And so just because God uses sarcasm and satire to poke at bad doctrine doesn't mean we should. As a matter of fact, the second application, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, that sets the tone of our engagement. And Paul lived this out well when he says to the church at Ephesus under the tutorage and the tutelage of young Timothy, he said, the Lord's servant must not be 
quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. God uses this tool of satire and sarcasm to get our attention and go, hey guys, this is bad. You need to know me well. Know me rightly. The third truth we see, and it's our last truth, is in verse 6 to 9. And it's long. If you got the notes, they're on the blog. You can look at it. I'm verbose. I know that. I have a hard time saying things succinctly. So what I did was underline the key points. Okay? So... Chapter 11, verse 6 and 9. In order to restrain the propensity for evil that will come from bad teaching, to exalt his fame, and to see that his purposes are accomplished, God confuses this language. God confuses this. I may have on brute right now. What's that? God confuses the languages and scatters the people into nations. To restrain the propensity for evil that will come from bad teaching and to exalt his fame and see that his purposes are accomplished, God confuses the languages and scatters the people into the nations. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. You now have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And so God, being gracious, restrains the propensity for evil. Can you imagine a world in which linguistic and cultural barriers were removed with sin involved, the manner of evil? When you look at history and the evil that kings and rulers have done, imagine if they were, through linguistic and cultural unity, able to bring more people into that devastation. Why did God give us government, Romans 13, to restrain evil and reward good? Because the propensity for evil is so great, God confuses the language and He scatters them. But He also does so to exalt His fame and to see that His purposes are accomplished. You see, God accomplishes His purpose in filling the earth from Genesis 1, 26-28. By confusing these languages and causing them, therefore, to scatter and move throughout the earth. Some things that are very important to note here. Linguistic and cultural barriers are constant reminders of the curse of sin and man's rebellion against God. Moses put this here to remind the people. That these barriers of culture and language are to constantly remind you of what sin has done. Now they're going to use it as a bludgeoning tool to disobey God with the great commission as they move into the land. Moses' intent is that they see and be reminded of our sinfulness. It's also important to note that linguistic and cultural barriers remind us of the mammoth task in the Great Commission, because we're we're sneaking up real quickly on Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And it may be my favorite passage in the whole Bible. Because it's the first installment of the Great Commission. Because what God's going to do as He scatters these people and then tables them out in verse 10 of chapter 11 through the end of chapter 11, He's going to scatter them. And the nations are going to be named by Shem's descendants. And then He's going to put a call on a guy named Abram. And he's going to tell him, I'm going to send you now to all these people that I've scattered who don't know me. 
And you will bear the good news to them. So when Jesus comes, He says, go make disciples of all nations. Jesus isn't making up a new idea. He's just restating what He's already given Abram to do to us. The Great Commission isn't new. It's a restatement of God's intention in the first place. And so when we come to these cultural and linguistic barriers, we are to be reminded of this mammoth task of making sure the nations know. We're to take it seriously and we're not to be flipping about it. Now what I'm about to say right here, I, 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 want, I want to be very clear. I put this in here with fear and trembling. Because what I'm about to say, I have taken more junk from people over this statement than I have if I had said Jesus was just a man. I really believe that. If I said Jesus was just, was just a man, which is a lie, because He's the God-man, right? He's the God-man, all right? The second person of the Trinity, the eternal God, the creator of all things. Colossians 1, 15, 16 and 17, right? Jesus is God and He's the pre-existent God. He didn't come into being. He always has been, right? You hear that? That's orthodox. That's Christian teaching. But if I said Jesus is just a man, I believe I would have taken less junk than what I've taken for this statement. You ready? You want to hear this? You're like, what in the world is he about to say? Linguistic and cultural barriers that we see as a result of rebellion in the fall here in chapter 11, 1 to 9. Also define for us the distinction between mission and ministry. We have used the word mission in Christianity to define cross-cultural gospel proclamation. We use the word ministry to define the work we do in the local church and around the local church. There's been a disturbing and alarming trend in American Christianity where we call work at Restoration Rome missions. And we might sneak up on that boundary and call it Local missions. He says, what's so wrong about that? There's nothing evil about it. But there's a practical implication. Because if I can call work at Restoration Rome missions, guess what I get to cop out of? Crossing the linguistic and cultural barriers that might kill me. As long as I can say I've been obedient to the Great Commission because I serve soup at the kitchen. We might feel better about it, but guess what we've ignored? The command to disciple the nations. The command to cross these linguistic and cultural barriers that are a reminder of the rebellion and sin and the mammoth task that lies in front of us. You hearing me? Because less than one-tenth of one percent of the funds in the church in the West get spent on cross-cultural work to people who don't know. We spend inordinate amounts of money on air conditioning for buildings seven days a week that aren't used. And plumbing and water on buildings that are used maybe twice a week. And we pay people To watch over those buildings and those places and to plan nice, easy ministries for people to consume. When there are thousands of unreached people groups who've never had access to the Bible and do not have the Bible in their language and never heard the gospel. Now you tell me, is that obedience to the command? Is that the knowledge of God practiced well? 
The answer to that question is no, it's not. Because God intends, and you're going to see this in Genesis, I'm, I'm way ahead of myself, totally get it, can't help it, because it all goes together. When God scattered the nations, He intends for the gospel to be preached there, which is why Jesus, God, says, go make disciples of the nations. And so, therefore, Three Rivers Church, let us be careful and not call local work missions, because it's not. The work of mission is to preach the gospel where it's not been named and establish local churches so that they may, and this is the pattern of the New Testament, so that from there they may take the responsibility of local mission and preach the gospel and bring people into the ministry of the local church. You'd be surprised at the nasty emails and phone calls and texts and blog responses I get from that statement. Again, I could say Jesus is just a man. People are like, well, maybe he's just going liberal. <laughs> but you say my work at Restoration Rome isn't missions, and you're like, rah, 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 rah. here's why. Because that statement takes a nice little bony finger and pokes down into the heart of man an idol of self-preservation. I'm not called to go die. I'm not called to be sick. I'm not called to give up money and resources and fame for something that may never come about. God made me to receive great things and notoriety. And to be known and have my name built in a platform and write a book. And everybody see that we've got a big ministry. That's what God made me for. Maybe made you to die unknown. Maybe he made you and created you to give Jesus all the glory so that nobody would know what's on your epitaph. Know Jesus. Preach Jesus. Die and be forgotten. That, that's the task. That's the task. And so this, this propensity for evil in the heart of man, God, God's gracious. You just notice back to the title, man's continued rebellion and God's gracious response. The reason I said that in the title is because it was really good of God to scatter them. It was a good thing. It was a really good thing. Because in his scattering of them, he paved the way for Jesus to come and send you and I to go preach to them. And this has been our task as a church for our 15 years in existence. We planted on the belief that God wanted us to work in a hard place. And the more we've worked in a hard place, the more God has called people from this fellowship to work in other places. And we've got some here today that are visiting and be here. And they'll be over for the retreat for our global partners here in a couple of weeks. And the question for us as a church has now become not how do we focus on one place, which we did for so long, but how do we shepherd the people God sends from this fellowship around the world? This is a good question. And we're trying to figure out the answer to that question. But this is the mission of the local church. Is that these nations that have been sent by God in this gracious act of scattering them, it's now our task to go tell them. Because guess what? Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right? And what was Abraham's task? To be a blessing to these nations. And if we're children of Abraham, book of Galatians then guess what our task is? To be a blessing to the nations. Uh, crazy, isn't it? Crazy. So, final applications. Oh, they already turned the clock off. I've broken the barrier. 
the fall and man's rebellion will not st- will not stop God's purposes. Satan in his little petty counter kingdom thought that he might supplant God and provide a barrier to God's purposes, but the fall of man's rebellion will not stop God's purposes. God is not open to alternative endings. You may hear, if you delve into the world of theology, you may hear of something called open theism, this heresy, this belief that 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 God doesn't know the end and He's kind of open to how things work out and it's kind of up to you and me to make it happen. Hogwash. That's not the God of the Bible. His purposes cannot be thwarted. He scattered them. And, and, and let me say this to the Western church. If we won't obey His great commission, He will make us obey it. He can take away the finances. You look through Christian history. I don't have time. Okay, I don't really have to. You, you can look through Christian history at how God has moved His church. And every time, there's a great article written by Ralph Winter. Great article in the Perspectives Reader. He talks about the, the kingdom strikes back. It's a great article. You can go Google it. The kingdom strikes back by Ralph Winter. And you look at these movements in the history of the church. And every time the church finds a way to get comfortable, God has a way of breaking that mess up. And scattering his people to the nations. Because that's his goal. So I want to say to the Western church. And particularly Three Rivers Church. Don't get comfortable. I don't want Jesus to break this up. I don't want him to scatter us. Because we refuse to scatter. You see him? You see what I'm saying? You tracking? You tracking? He doesn't have a problem breaking the church in the West up to send us. He will. If we won't. He's not open to alternative endings. The gospel will be preached among all the nations. He intends that these people he's scattered to glorify him. And he will make it happen. Zephaniah 3, 9 to 11 looks forward to that day. And Acts chapter 2, verse 6 to 21 is a fulfillment and the beginning of the end. When the Spirit comes and enables his people to now speak in all the languages of the people he scattered here in Genesis 11. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Zephaniah looks forward to that day. There's going to come a day when they're going to speak in these languages. In Acts 2, it happens. And he mobilizes his church and sends it. And by the way, in Acts chapter 8, after the stoning of Stephen, what does God do? He breaks it up. Persecution breaks out and the Christians are scattered and they go everywhere preaching the gospel. Number two, what God scatters... He is going to bring back together in the powerful gospel of the kingdom rule and salvation of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to go into Colossians 1, 13 to 20. But what God's doing in the gospel is bringing back into unity and all things under the rule of Christ what he scattered in Genesis 11, 1 to 9. That's why the gospel is powerful. Because it's reconciling all things under the rule of Christ. And there will come the day of unity where people from all nations will believe. Will be under the reign and banner of Jesus Christ. And every nation will then be subservient to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Finally, we can confidently engage the world with the gospel of the kingdom. We we can do this with confidence. This is God's plan. We can confidently do it. And three of us, can I just confess to you? I get very frustrated. Because I'm I'm human. I'm just human. And I see the world around us and I sometimes wonder, what are we doing wrong? Why can't we be like? Why can't we do? Why can't we see? Why won't this happen? And then I'm reminded. I see people who come in our fellowship today who've who've been launched from our fellowship and, and get emails and texts from our people who are serving around the world, making Jesus big. And then I'm brought back and going, it's not about you. It's not about your church. If you cease to exist, am I enough for you?
That's a wrecking question. Because let me be honest with you, often it's not. Jesus just isn't enough. He is, but I'm broke bad. Right? And so Three Rivers Church, I want you to understand, we can confidently engage. Because Jesus is making all things come under His rule through the preaching of the good news of His kingdom and His salvation to the nations that He scattered here. And so Three Rivers, let me encourage you, stay on task. Stay on task. Serve locally. Plug in and serve the world as best you can from where you are. Serve our people. Give. Email. You guys in your Radical Life groups, you have people, global partners that you're assigned. Don't fail to email them. Check in on them. Pray for them. Let them know you're praying. You see what I'm saying? Do those things. As we stay on task, we trust Jesus to build His kingdom. And then the last thing we do is we come and we worship. Because He intends to be worshipped among the nations. And no better place to start than right here this morning, right now. Let's just pray and then we're going to worship together. Father, we ask that you would build your kingdom. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be exalted, be lifted high, be lifted up. Um, pray that you would take your word and really make it a lamp for our feet and light for our path. Um, Lord, I pray that somehow this morning you will take these, these weak words that I have spoken uh, from your word and their applications and you will use them to work grace in, in, in your people and just the reading of your word that can be powerful enough, I pray you'd make it effective. I do ask that you would bring praise from our lips, that we would worship you in song right now. But I do ask that as we leave this place today, you'd help us to worship you as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Pray that you'd work even now in our time together as we worship you to counsel our souls in truth, to heal, to fix, to mend, to mobilize. Jesus, we pray you pull that off. Pray you pull that off. If there's the need to receive Christ this morning, to, to believe the good news, pray you work effectively, powerfully. Mobilize. God, I pray even this morning that uh, you would send more. And Father, I confess to you and agree with you and I submit to if you would choose to close our doors to mobilize us to the nation, we'd receive that. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Better is one day in your courts and a thousand anywhere else. So we, just want, we don't want to just survive. We want to thrive. We want to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So God, mobilize sin from this place from little Rome, Georgia, from this little church, fill the world with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we pray.